Normally, at this time, I ask for you to open up your Bibles, and if there was ever a day when I wasn't going to do that, today would be the day. Uh, not because we don't want you to follow along in Scripture. Typically, if, if you aren't asked to open up your Bible, that's typically because the preacher's not going to be using it very much. Um, I like to use the Scriptures when I preach. It's kind of the hallmark of what we do here. Uh, so I would normally ask you to, but if we didn't do that, today would be a great day because we're going to be looking at one verse, and one verse that likely every single person in here knows, and that's John 3.16. Uh, we, we preached through 15 verses last time, so to, to not let you get the idea that we're going to start cruising really fast, we're going to just do one verse today and kind of slow ourselves down. So John 3.16 is the verse for the day. And to be honest with you, if, if there is any verse that is better known in Western Christianity and in modern times, I don't know of one. And it is ironic, I think, and, and kind of odd, that perhaps the best reason why this particular verse is known by just about everyone in here is actually due to sports, if, if nothing else. There's a man in the late 70s and the early 80s uh, whose name was Roland Stewart. And Roland Stewart was kind of one of those Jesus freak hippie type people. Um, I'm not speaking from actual knowledge of what those people were like, uh, but nevertheless, this is how he was described to me. And he would have a white shirt with Jesus saves on it. He would wear a rainbow uh, wig afro, and he would position himself at sporting events, uh, most notably football games, where the camera would have to pan to him. And apparently producers hated him, and they didn't want him on camera, but he would position himself behind the field goal post so that when they were showing the field goal, they would have to show him. He would position himself behind the catcher at baseball games. He went to baseball games, basketball games, football games, nationally televised games, so that he could pro produce not only Jesus saves on his shirt, but he had that big placard that read John 3.16. And so he became very famous for this. And because of his work and this, and he basically spent his life doing this, the particular verse that we're covering today became so well known in America. But what we want today is not just to know what the text says, but to kind of dig into what it means. And so we're not just looking at repeating what John 3.16 says, but today we get to actually look at what it means for God to love and what it is about God's love. So if you would repeat with me, if you know it by heart, uh, or you can read it out of your ESV, that's fine as well, uh, or any version you're using. You don't have to use an ESV. There's plenty of good translations out there. But John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or only begotten son. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> this is why we use, we use one version of the Bible. The God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's right. So most of you, quote, that's probably the only verse I ever, ever memorized or ever learned in the King James Version. Um, and, and it's not because I, I looked it up in the King James Version. It's just because everyone who ever quoted it to me quoted it out of the King James Version. So uh, that is what we're covering today. And so let's look at what it means for God to love the world. First, we're going to talk about the object of God's love. The object of God's love here is clearly the world. Now, when we read that in this verse, most people take the object of God's love being the world, talking about the quantity of people in the world. And so they say, listen, it's, it means that God loves all of the individual people who make up the world. Whatever the world is and all the individual parts of the world, including especially people, that's what God loves. And if there is anything that kind of unites modern Christianity or anybody who calls themselves Christian, it is united around this idea that God is love. And of course, that's very true. And we would uphold that. First John 4.8 and 4.16 repeats, God is 
love. And so even if you're not really Christian, if you're an unorthodox Christian like um, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, you're still kind of focused around this idea that God is love, that he has our best interests in mind. And so when people read this verse, they often think that God's love here is portrayed as for everyone, and it's it's the same. It's ubiquitous. It's the same regardless of race, economics, social position. It doesn't matter if you are a Chinese uh, person living in China or if you are a Chinese person living in America. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. God's love is over you. And there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that. But it is clear here that the object of the the love of God being the world does not mean everybody the same. Because it says very clearly that whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. That it is clear that God's love for the world was focused primarily on those who would believe. As a matter of fact, just two verses later, something we'll look at next week in John 3.18, we have this. Whoever believes in him in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but condemning people is a very strange way to show how much you love them. Okay? That is not an aspect of God's love. It is an aspect of his wrath and his anger. And so it is clear that while God does love the world, it is not so much here talking about how every individual person is loved by God, but it is more talking about the quality of people in the world. Now, when people talk like that, what they really mean is they want to demonstrate and they want to maximize God's love. And so they say, God doesn't just love love some people. He loves everybody. And they're trying to maximize God's love. But when we actually hear stories about how people love other people, and even how we hear stories in Scripture about how God loves people, it is rarely just spraying love all over the place. It is often a very devoted love to one or two particular people. Recently, I read a um, a story in a book uh, about human endurance about a a, um, former athlete named Rahanan Hull, and she was a long-distance runner at the University of Oregon uh, for quite a while, Um, and she ended up being a marathoner, and she used to run marathons, and as a matter of fact, as it goes, her family would tell stories about her uh, walking around and and running and then coming across a marathon and just signing up that day and running the marathon because she just was that much of a runner. And so she was obviously in excellent shape, and she, she kept that up even into her 30s. She had a young son named Julian, and they were in... Uh, she had moved to Costa Rica, and they were out playing in the surf, and the surf was heavy that day, so she took him out beyond the surf to play, and it just so happened that while it seemed like everything would be all right, there was actually a severe undertow that particular day, and they got swept out, and it turns out that she couldn't handle him out in the water. She was not a natural swimmer. Uh, she had almost, as you would imagine, for somebody who runs marathons all the time, no body fat whatsoever, so she wasn't a very buoyant woman, and uh, so for 45 minutes, she not only tread water to keep her afloat, but she was also treading water to keep her son afloat. Her son, at this time, she only weighed about 100 pounds. He weighed about 50 pounds, so she, she was trying to hold him up so that he wouldn't drown, and uh, a couple of surfers who were on the beach saw her and paddled out to her and it took him about 30 minutes to get out to her so she was treading water with her son in water clearly over her head she could not touch the bottom uh, for more than 45 minutes and by the time they got out to her she was bobbing up and down in the water so that she would just push herself up to get a gasp of air holding her son over her head the whole time they got out she 
pushed her son toward them, grabbed him, and by the time they got him on the surfboard, turned back around, she was gone. Now, that is a really wonderful demonstration of love, right? She spent everything she had. She, all she needed to do was push off one more time, one more stroke of the arm, one more kick of the leg. She would have been fine. They were there to rescue her. She knew they were there to rescue her, and she couldn't even expand one more kick. She had taken herself to the very limit. It is a harrowing story, but it is a wonderful testimony of how much she loved her son. And, by the way, what a wonderful way to die. Not drowning so much, but certainly giving your life for your child that way. We would see that as an incredible act of love. But even so, God's love is not magnified by doing what that woman did. Miss Hull clearly loved her son and gave herself for her son. But God's love is not magnified with how many people he loved, nor is it magnified just in the fact that he loves people that he ought to love. God's love is magnified by loving people who don't love him. When he, we hear here that God loved the world, it, it's more about the the people who are associated with the world, the world is always in Scripture, and especially in the book of John, and in 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John, and in the book of Revelation, set against God. So the world, as we talked about several sermons ago in the beginning of John chapter 1, the world is not just the world and its population, it's the world and its quality. It is set against God. God doesn't love you who believe because you bring him things. He doesn't love you because you do nice things for him. He doesn't love you because you believe in him. He doesn't love you because you have brought things to him and have earned his love. He doesn't love you because you first loved him, but rather we love God because God first loved us. God loves people who are sinful. God loves people who are fallen. God loves people who are his enemies. God loves people who are hostile to him. He loves people who hate him, who blaspheme him, who speak evil of him. He loves them all the same. You are all evidence of that. Those of you who believe, believe only because God has loved you first. The world rejects God. Sin seeps through the world. It rejects God. And yet all the same, God loves us. John instructs us not to love the world. In 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. God's love is deeper than Ms. Hull's love. Not because he loves people more. Not because he loves those who love him more but because he loves those who don't love him. He loves those who are his enemies. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us that in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't need to make yourself right to know the love of God. You don't need to make yourself good to know the love of God. Friends, not only does God love us this way, but we are then commanded to love others that same way. We are called upon by God to not just love the people who love us, to not just look around and see the people sitting by you and you think, I get along well with him. I love my brother. Love him. That's wonderful. That's great. You should love him. 
But you should also see the people sitting around you that you don't get along with and love them the same. And what's more, you should also see the people in the world who are your enemies and pray for them and love them. Matthew 5, 44 through 48. Jesus says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are not friends just to love the people who love you, but you are to love the people who hate you. You are to love the people who in your gut you want to hate yourself. But love them all the same, for this is exactly how the Father loves the world. The object of the Father's love is the world. Secondly, what is the measure of God's love here? What is the measure? How much does he love the world? Now, we need to say, when Scripture here says, for God so loved the world, we take that as, as how much he loves the world. It doesn't really mean that. It means how he loves the world. But nevertheless, there is a depiction here of how much God loves the world. What is the measure of God's love? It is this wonderful juxtaposition between the world and our sinfulness and what he gives to show love to the world. We are faithless. We're lawless. We're insolent. We're backbiters. We're traitorous to the kingdom of God. We're ungrateful for the gifts that God gives to us. We're idolaters. We're lovers of money, of self, of sex, of power, of fame, success. We are doing everything we can to fight against God, and yet God still loves us, but realize how God loves us. God loves us not by giving second-hand things to us. He didn't sort of scrounge around his basement for a $5 gift for your birthday and repackage it and give it to you again. God didn't give you something that was a throwaway. God didn't give you something that was sort of second best, but God gave you his only son, his only begotten son, the very son that carries the image of God. He is the exact imprint of the image of God, and he is the one who is beloved by God before the foundations of the world. He is the one that is worth all things because he is God himself. He is the faithful and the true son, the one who is obedient in all things, the one whom the Father has set his love on particularly. He knows the Father intimately. He does everything that the Father asks him to do. He is blessed above all things. And the world is not worth this son. God has pressed all of his love and all of his compassion and all of his joy and, and excitement and, and love into this one son. He has pressed it all into him. All of the infinite, powerful, awesome might of God's love is in this son. And that is what he gave for sinners. This is not some sort of second-rate love, but a love between father and son, between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity that comes with such ferocity and intensity that all of the love that you might have for anything is dim compared to it. Think, friend, of, of that one sense of love that you've had in your life where you, you felt it crushing to you almost, where you looked at someone or something and thought about how much you loved it. For many of you, that is the at a time perhaps when you were losing a parent and you looked at them and you thought about how much you really, truly loved them. For some of you, is that the, 
the birth of your child. For others, it's, I don't know, a random night with your wife. And it, it, you realize how much you love that person. And, and you honestly feel as though, like your heart just can't quite handle it. All of that, no matter how intense that emotion was for you, at that one moment, even, even compiling that and letting that be how you lived your life for all of your life, it is but a flicker. It is but a, a, a spark compared to the love that God has for his son. It is like a grain of sand compared to the weight of the world's. We don't know this kind of intensity. And yet, that is the same son that God gave for the world. He loved sinful people so much that he would give the very son that he loved more than anything so that he might know them. This is the measure of God's love for those who believe it is frankly immeasurable. We will never, even in eternity, know the fullness of the measure of God's love for his son, and therefore you will never know the fullness of his measure of his love for you. Third, what is the means of God's love? How do we get to God's love? The only access we have to God's love is the full and unabridged love of God is through the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Now it is true, and it is real, that God loves people through other means. So for instance, in Matthew 5.45 above, the depiction uh, that I, I read just a minute ago, the depiction was that God loves people by sending rain on the just and the unjust. God God provides for all of humanity in a number of different ways, in every way possible that it is for you to be sustained. When God sustains you, that is a depiction of his love. He doesn't need to do that. However, that is not the full-throated, full-throttle, unadult, or, or unabridged version of God's love. Listen, I just had Halloween, and I'm going to tell you, without any doubt in my mind, I love M&M's. Okay? There is no candy better than M&M's. The candy shell is good. Chocolate is good. The peanuts are good. Get out of here with the peanut butter. Get out of here with the like, Rice crispy stuff in the middle. It's junk. Go Peanuts or go home, right? So M&M's are delicious. They're good. They're, they're wonderful. Now, stop and compare that for a second to my love for my wife. Okay? The two simply do not compare. They, they are not in the same ballpark. And Okay, so some of you are wondering whether it's my wife who is diminished in love or the M&M's. I love my wife more than M&M's. Brie was way more worried about that than you were. So she knows how much I love M&M's, okay? So she was actually kind of concerned there. They, they pale in comparison. I can truly say something like I love this or I love that and mean that I, I love those things, but, but it's not the full intensity with which I love my wife, so it is with God's other demonstrations of love. They're good. It's good that God sends rain on the just and the unjust, and he loves the unjust by sending rain upon them so that their crops may grow, so that they may have provision. But is that, that is not the same thing as the way that God loves people through his son. People who do not believe in the son might be under a form of God's love, but that love is meant to lead them somewhere else. 
They are not ends in and of themselves. So listen to how Paul puts this in Romans 2.4. He's talking to Jewish people who, who judge the Gentiles, but then do the same thing themselves. And listen to how, God, or, or how Paul speaks to them. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He says, you stand there and say that those people deserve condemnation, but I don't. And he says, listen, the only reason why you are not condemned yourself is because God is patient and he is kind and he is forbearing on your sins. And don't you know that all of those sins are not demonstration of God's love for you? It's not an approval of who you are. It is meant for you to be brought to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says almost the same thing. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says, you, you might wake up today and think that today was just like yesterday, and that day was just like the day before, and on and on and on it goes. And so you are okay. Everything proceeds the same way. So I know that God isn't terribly annoyed with me, because if he were annoyed with me, I'd have cancer, or I would have lost my job, or all of these are indications of whether God loves me or whether God doesn't. And, and Peter says, you know, each day might go along just the same way. But you cannot take that as an indication that God's wrath is not upon you. He says, there is coming a day when all of this forbearance and all of this patience and all of this kindness will run out. That those weaker forms of God's love will indeed run their course. They were meant to lead you to repentance so that you might know the fullness of God's love in his son. The only way that we can have access to God's true, abiding, and eternal love is only through Jesus Christ and only through the work that he has done on the cross. God's mercy will end. His long-suffering will run out. The kindness that he has shown will turn into judgment, and his forbearance will bring you to a greater account, friend. All of God's mercies and all of his grace outside of Jesus Christ is only there to bring you to repentance so that you might not perish. We have no access to the unfiltered and powerful, awesome and magnificent and glorious love of God unless it is through Jesus Christ. But once we are in Jesus Christ, we have access to all of it. Every ounce of God's love that is for his son is for you. Because you are in Christ, as Paul would say. And so anything that is true of Christ is now true of you. And if God loves his son, then God certainly loves you. All of the quality and the goodness of God's love, it's enduring nature. It always endures. God has always loved his son, and he will always love his son. His love for his son never wavers. All of his jealousy for his son is upon you. He will not share you with another. All of its protection and all of its provision all of it is ours in Christ. That brings us to another question within this idea is how do we get to that love? If the love of God, if the means by which we enter into the love of God is in Christ, then how do we get in Christ? It is only through belief. 
We believe and we trust. We talk all the time of belief. And I'm coming to the point where I honestly feel as though belief is not the best word to use for what the Bible is trying to get us to understand. Words change meaning over time. When we typically talk about historical things and we talk about belief, what we really mean is, do you think that that thing happened? And, and clearly the gospel is nothing more. Well, let me back that up. The gospel is clearly more, but it is nothing less than a depiction of what has happened in history. Jesus came, he died, and he was raised. Those are historical things. And if you look through the New Testament, it is clear that if those historical things did not happen in history, in real time, then our faith is useless. There is no meaning behind it if it didn't happen. And so, at one sense, we are to believe simply in the fact that it happened. But that makes belief very backward-looking. All it does is look backward and say, well, well, did this happen or didn't it happen? It's simply a fact-checking. Do you believe that it happened in history? This is saying things that are very, very much the same as asking questions like, do you believe that there was a second gunman on the grassy knoll? Do you believe that the space landing was shot in Burbank? Do you believe that the Great Depression happened because people were leveraging their stocks? Do you believe that Abraham Lincoln was a vampire hunter? Those, those questions are no different than do you believe that Jesus was raised if all you're doing is saying, it's a fact that I can check off a box. In that sense, belief sometimes just looks backwards. But that is not what we are called to do. Those who believe in Jesus here are not those who simply believe that he did the things that the apostles said he did. As though they, they simply saw the miracles and said, do you believe in the miracles? There were plenty of people, as we've talked about, who saw the miracles. They saw them with their own two eyes, and they didn't believe. But it's more about trust. Trust doesn't just look backwards, it also looks forward. Trust sees what has happened in the past and lives in light of it. So do you trust in Christ's death and resurrection? Do you live, live with the understanding and the knowledge that his death was a death for your sins and his resurrection was your justification in that? What this means is that trusting in Christ is, is not stealing because you know that God will provide all things for you in Christ. Trusting in Christ means that you don't fret over your health, because as Christ was raised, one day you will be raised. Trusting in Christ means that you don't take pleasure in sin, because you know that Christ died for your sins. Trusting in Christ means that you don't long for the things of the world, because you know that Christ's resurrection promises you better things than anything that this world can provide. Trusting in Christ means that you don't have to right every wrong, but that you entrust yourself to one who judges justly just as Jesus did and was raised from the grave. Trusting in Christ looks at the work that Christ has done and said, that is a man who is trustworthy with my all. So entrust yourself to him. All of yourself. Give him all of your obedience. Because Christ has proved himself trustworthy. He has proved himself to know and to understand the things of God better than us. And so rightly submit yourself. When he says, do this, it is for your good. Friend, do it. That's what it means to entrust yourself to him. Give him your body to use as he would have you use it. Give him your money to use as he would have you use it. Give to him your time to use as he would have you use it. 
Make sure that, that you are not simply giving what you feel like you should give, but listen to how Christ leads you in giving. When it talks about giving of your time or giving of your energies or giving of your money, those things are not yours. If you have entrusted them to Christ, they are strictly not yours. And what's more, if you have entrusted them to Christ, that means that you trust him with them. And so you prioritize your life around him. When the word tells you to gather with one another, we gather with one another. When the world tells us not to engage in this, we don't engage in that. This is what it means to give Christ your trust. Give everything you have, for God's love is everything you need, and you have it in Jesus Christ. Lastly, let's talk about the purpose of God's love. The purpose of his love here is clearly that you would have eternal life. When we hear that, sometimes we think, oh, eternal life, that's just this life going on and on and on, which frankly is not exactly what we want. Some of you live pretty good lives and maybe you're thinking, eh, a few thousand years, that'd be all right. Some of you are thinking, no, please take me and change me, make me new again. This is not really what we want and it's not really what's being promised to us here. In John 17, 3, helpfully, John spells out for us what eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The knowledge that, that John's talking about there is not just head knowledge, but it's heart knowledge. It's understanding him and experiencing God. When Jesus talks about having eternal life, when John talks about having eternal life, it means that you live with God. You have experienced his love, and you live in his love. But this is not something that we just wait for. That they might have eternal life is not just mean that we're waiting to die before we can experience what is good and what Christ has promised us. But Christ means for us to experience it even now. Walking through the book of John, you have so many depictions of this. The next chapter over in chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, as he's talking to the Samaritan woman about dragging up water from a well, he says, everyone who drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That welling up into eternal life means the Spirit will be in you. You will know and you will taste and you will have the Spirit with you. It is not the experience that you will have when you are resurrected in full glorious resurrection body with the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is a foretaste of it, and it is real and it is true. In John 7, 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, "'If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink.'" Whomever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 14, 18 through 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus will be with you. You do get to experience the relationship and the love of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, the promise of everlasting life is lived in the love of God through Jesus Christ is not something that we await, but is something to be lived out and treasured even now. Even in our 
weakness of our mortal flesh, even in the sinfulness of our hearts, we might still have an experience of what it means to live with God, to know him in an everlasting way. This is exactly what John 3.16 is getting at. God's love is known only through Jesus Christ and it is given to those who believe so that they might experience him and they might know him just as the Father has known the Son and the Son has known the Father. Or to put it in a much more simple fashion, God loved the world this way, that he gave his only Son that you would not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, we need to do more than just have a rote memorization of John 3.16. Roland Stewart, the man who we talked about in the beginning, probably knew John 3.16 better than anyone. And he did more than anyone, especially in the West, to make sure that everyone knew that verse. Everywhere he went, he put it on his shirts, he put it on his placards, he did everything he could. From the late 70s all the way through the 80s, he did this. But it's unclear if Stewart had actually experienced the truth of this verse that he so loudly proclaimed. In the early 90s, he became much more emotionally unstable, peaking on September 22, 1992. He thought that the return of Christ was imminent. As a matter of fact, he didn't just put a vagueness to it. He thought it was going to be in the next six days. So to make sure that as many people found out as it possibly could, he posed as a contractor in downtown L.A., grabbed two day-working men, and by gunpoint led them into a hotel room where he happened to come across a maid. In the excitement and the commotion, the two men got away. The maid locked herself in the bathroom. He locked himself in the hotel room, where he threatened to shoot down planes that were coming into LAX while he was putting placards with John 3.16 and other Bible verses to cover up the hotel windows. Things that to this day, as far as I could tell by searching, he has never repented of, even though Jesus did not return on the 28th of September, 1992. Friends, Roland Stewart might not know that now, but he will one day know that it is not good enough to simply repeat John 3.16. It's not enough to make sure that people know John 3.16. It is a verse that is not meant to simply be shared. It is not a verse that is simply meant to be memorized. It is a verse that is meant to be known, experienced, loved, and lived pray that you would experience it and know it and trust in what it says to trust in. Many people love this verse because it is a nice, short sort of summary of what we believe as Christians, and there is no doubt that is true. To say that you have experienced this is simply to say that you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, live your life by it. Do the very thing that it calls you to do. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ because that and in that only can you find the love of God. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the good things that you have given to us. We're thankful that you bring rain on the just and the unjust. We're thankful that you give crops and that you give air and you give government to those who are righteous and to those who are not. But Father, we are not here confused as to whether these things are depictions of your love in its fullest and truest sense. We pray, Father, that all of those good things might lead many in our country to repentance but they will only do so when we proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, the fact that we can be forgiven of our sins and know the true love and everlasting life that comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
So we pray, Father, that we ourselves would know this love. We pray that we would know it, that we would live in it, and that we would adore it. That you would keep us from sin and from things that would damage the reputation of the gospel in the world. We pray that you would keep us from our own selfishness and own sinfulness, that we might not find ourselves moving further and further away from the love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that we might be a witness and then take the good news of John 3.16 to the world. We pray this for your name and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.